Well, good evening. Welcome. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 46 tonight. Jeremiah 46. And we're finishing the course. (laughs) Jeremiah 46, all the way to chapter 52. Now, what I'm going to do tonight is, just so that we are geared and ready, um, is we're going to navigate the forest and not describe every single tree in these chapters. Um, If you have read through these chapters, they're oracles against the nations. This is Jeremiah's grand finale, and he's writing to nations and telling them that their fate is the same as Jerusalem's exile and destruction is coming to all of the world. And it gets um, rather repetitive and tedious to kind of, <laughs> and depressing to go and study every single little um, brick that's coming apart of one another. So we're going to look at these judgments and we're going to fit them. Where do these trees fit in the larger forest of scripture? So that's, that's up front what I'm doing uh, because, like I said, this is, this is dealing with the big picture. It's dealing with the nations and what Jeremiah is writing about all of them, ten of them. And he's going to conclude, apart from the final chapter, um, he's going to conclude with judgment against Babylon And there's reason, and we will see as we go into it, to see that he is not just talking about one historical city in the past. That he is pronouncing judgment upon all of Babylon. Not one historical city, but a spirit of resistance against God. Whether this be the Tower of Babel in Genesis or the Babylon of the Chaldeans in Jeremiah's time or Babylon the Whore in Revelation, he is pronouncing judgment upon that entire spirit, that entire system. And if you don't believe me, go home tonight, read Revelation 18 and count how many times you can mirror direct references to Jeremiah. And if you have a cross-reference Bible, it'll be a lot easier for you. But that's cheating. It's not. I did it. So, <laughs> so let's uh, let's get into this here. Um, all right. So in chapter forty-six, we got judgment on Egypt, and I'll go and touch a, a few of these in a minute here. Judgment on Egypt. So Egypt is in this list of bad luck. Chapter forty-seven, the Philistines are judged. Chapter forty-eight, the Moabites are judged. In chapter 49, Ammon is judged, the Ammonites. Then in 49.23, we have Damascus is judged. Uh, In uh, verse 34 of chapter 29, we have um, Elam is judged. And I skipped one up a little bit in verse 28. uh, Kedar and Hazar are judged. And then finally, in chapter 50, the grand finale, judgment on Babylon... And this is a grand finale. See, for a while, the first, um, gosh, chapters 46 to 49, they're about the nations in general. And that occupies about 121 verses. You get to chapter 50 and 51, and it's judgment upon Babylon. And you're like, well, it's only two chapters. But 
Whereas 46 to 49 was 121 verses, chapters 50 and 51 are 110 verses. That's just about as much time for Babylon as for the other nine nations Jeremiah is calling judgment upon. So Babylon is his emphasis and it's saved for last because it's the finale. And of course, as we've been going through Jeremiah, we realize Babylon's the arc enemy. That's the one that the readers and hearers of this message are excited about. <laughs> there, our wicked enemy is going to be judged as well. And then the book closes in chapter 52 with the fall of Jerusalem. Um, we already looked at that in chapter 39. It's recounted in chapter 52. And actually, almost every verse is identical with the end of 2 Kings. So it's very likely that Jeremiah himself, although it's part of his prophecy, didn't personally write chapter 52. Uh, first, it's very, very, very close to 2 Kings. Uh, second, it probably, the um, when they put all this together for the Hebrew Bible, they're probably like, Let's let's fit let's finish this a little more officially. And third, if you look at um, the verse right before chapter fifty-two, the very end of fifty-one, it says, "Thus far are the words of Jeremiah." It's the concluding. These are the words of Jeremiah. It's over. And so then they just kind of you know like the credits roll up at the end of a movie. Well, you, you throw on uh, a retelling of the fall of Jerusalem and the fate of everybody to sort of finish up the credits. And there's a surprise scene at the end. You know, some movies throw that surprise scene after the credits. There's a surprise scene in Jeremiah. So I'll also talk about that here momentarily. But let's spend some of our attention now on Babylon. Chapter 50 and 51. The great climatic fall of the great arch enemy Babylon. Now Babylon. Um... In the Bible, Jerusalem obviously leads the mentions of all cities. Mentioned over 750 times is Jerusalem in the Bible. Second place is Babylon. Mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. That is more than any other city. It's basically, if you were to, to uh, narrow the Bible down in cities, you would come down to a tale of two cities. That would make a good title for something. A tale of two cities between Jerusalem and Babylon. But Babylon has almost half the references of Jerusalem. It's a big, important city. It's mentioned early, early on in the Bible, Genesis 12, with the Tower of Babel. And that, that's explaining the beginnings of Babylon. Um, and then it goes, you find it all the way through the prophets. We've been hearing this word a ton, Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. And then you get to the end in Revelation, and Babylon is as far as chapter 18 of Revelation, almost one of the last chapters of the Bible. Babylon is marbled in the Bible just as much as Jerusalem. So we're dealing with a tale of two cities. And in our particular section of this tale, Babylon is winning at the moment. We had just seen that they had made Jerusalem to fall into a pile of ruins and rubble, right? And so Babylon is the great empire of the earth. And the only nation they hadn't yet destroyed yet is the Egyptians. And as well, as chapter 46 says, that's not far away. They're going to fall too. And so momentarily, Babylon is winning. Why? Well, 
they have the wisest men, they have the best technology, they have all the PhDs and the best schools and universities, and their governments got it right, and they have a social health care thing, and they've got, that's why, no, that's not why. It's none of these man-made things that has caused Babylon to be great like they are. It's for this reason, chapter 51, verse 7. 51, 7. Babylon was a golden cup in Yahweh's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Why have all the nations been ruined by Babylon? Not because of Babylon's strength, not because of their governmental systems, not because of any of that stuff, not their military, because God used them as a cup of maddening wine in his hand. God willed that Babylon destroy many nations. Also, in chapter 51, verse 20, he, uh, Babylon's not only God's cup, but he's their hammer. 51:20. You are my hammer and weapon of war. With you I break nations in pieces, and with you I destroy kingdoms. With you I break in pieces the horse and rider. And it goes down and says, Babylon, everything that you have done is because you are the hammer in my hand. That's what is going on with Babylon. Babylon very, very, very much in a sick, twisted way, which we will clarify, not yet. A lot of previews for you tonight. Um, They are doing God's will. They are instruments of God's will, and they are doing it to the letter. They're doing everything God desires them to do. But... Babylon is going to eventually fall and fall hard with no one to help. Let's look at a couple verses to explain how hard Babylon's going to fall. 50 verse 39. 50:39. This by the way is picked up by Revelation chapter 18 verse 2. Therefore, wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people nor be inhabited for all generations. There you have it. It's going to become a zoo of wildlife. There's going to be nobody there. Just animals feeling free to live within the broken ruins because that's how destroyed it is. Nobody's even there. Verse 40. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell in Babylon and no son of man shall sojourn in her. That is destruction. Um, We look also at uh, verse 25. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall ever be taken from you. For a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. And then, um, let's see, did we, 50 verse 39, oh, we did. 
Man, 50 and 51, you get so lost. 51 verse 25, we just did. Uh, Look at verse 29. The land trembles and writhes in pain for the Lord's purposes against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. And now verse 36. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. This is, he's talking to Jerusalem. I'm going to take vengeance for you. Um, I will dry up her, that's Babylon's sea, and make her fountain dry. And Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitant. Verse 42. The sea has come upon Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. Her cities have become a horror and a land, her land uh, a land of drought and a desert and a land in which no one dwells and through which no son of man passes. There in verses 42 and 43, you see this picture of a, uh, not just a destroyed place, but a decreated place. You've got waters rising above it like the flood or like the pre-created state of the earth in Revelation 1 verse 2. And you have, uh, it's no longer a garden and it's flourishing and man and, and life and God's blessing is upon it, but it's now becoming a desert, an absolute wasteland with no life whatsoever. And then finally, um, we'll look at verse chapter 51 verse 61. And this is how Jeremiah's words end. 51 verse 61 And Jeremiah said to Sarai, When you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say... So he's sending these words with Sarai to Babylon, and he's going to read this judgment against Babylon in Babylon. That's pretty intense. And you shall say, verse 62, O Lord, you have said concerning this place... That you will cut it off, so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall become desolate forever. And when you finish reading this book, Jeremiah is instructing him, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, See, (laughs) thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So here we get this picture that this judgment against Babylon is absolutely and finally complete. Nobody will ever even pass by there again. A haunt of jackals, ostriches will bury their heads there and other animals will roam around and metaphorically, poetically speaking, that waters are going to cover it. It's just going to be basically like it's not even there anymore. And to finish it all off with a grand gesture, Jeremiah tells the reader of this prophecy in Babylon, to when you're done, crumble it up, tie a stone to it, and throw it in the Euphrates and say, that is finished. And everyone's going to get the point. Babylon is to fall and never rise again. Why? 51 verse 49. 51 verse 49. Babylon must fall 
for the slain of Israel. Babylon must fall because of what she did to Jerusalem, to Israel. For the blood and the people that Babylon killed, God's own people, that Babylon is going to pay itself. Now, the good news is that in this bad news for Babylon comes good news for Israel. That in the death and fall of Babylon comes the life and, in a sense, a resurrection for Israel. It's because of Babylon's fall that Israel is going to have a chance to be replenished again. It's because the Persians defeated the Babylonians that Israel was able to return to her homeland and rebuild the temple in the book of Ezra and rebuild the city of Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah. It's because Babylon pays for her deeds that Israel will be liberated. (laughs) It's through the death of one that brings life for another. (laughs) Well, here's some detail about the life that's coming for Jerusalem. We see in 50 verse 4 that in those days, 50 verse 4, And in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. Verse 5, they shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten So in those days when Babylon's destroyed, they're all going to come back together and say, where's Zion? Let's find the way back. Let's rejoin the covenant with our God and it will never end. Babylon's fall brings Israel's rise. Verse 17, chapter 50, verse 17. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First lion was the king of Assyria, devoured him. And now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones Poor Israel has been harassed by the nations, driven around like wolves and bears against sheep. Verse 18, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment upon the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. I will, verse 19 key, I will restore Israel to his pasture and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan And his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. And in those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none. And sin in Judah and none shall be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. That's... That's obviously powerful because it talks about their forgiveness and everything we've made right for Israel. But look at the subtle imagery here. The kings of Assyria and Babylon have devoured the lambs of Israel. And it even doesn't say here something about licking his bones, gnawing on his bones. This is a full consumption. And then the lamb's just going to skip and hop and eat in the pastures again. 
It's as if Babylon has eaten Jerusalem. And when God has his way with Babylon, the big bad wolf is hacked open and little red riding hood's grandma comes out, right? It's just like that, that Israel is going to be given new birth. Once again, through Babylon's fall, they will resurrect. They're going to come back. So this good news, the bad news for Babylon is good news for Israel. Definitely, definitely. Um, You look at verse um, 51, verse 5. 51 verse 5, Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts. So the temple's destroyed, Jerusalem's destroyed, we're in a foreign place, God forgot us. Nope, you're going to see Babylon fall and you will know, I didn't forget you. I'm still on your side, I'm still working with you and for you. And then in 51 verse 50, You have escaped from the sword. Go and do not stand still. Remember the Lord from far away and let Jerusalem come into your mind. You see the verse right before that? Verse 49. Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel. Then verse 50. Remember the Lord from far away and let Jerusalem come into your mind. Jerusalem's going to be renewed when Babylon is destroyed. That's the good news that Jeremiah is giving to Israel. And it's not just for Israel, but it's for the whole world. God has a similar message for the whole world. In fact, Jeremiah has a similar message for the rest of the world. Um, We're going to look through that right here, chapter 46. And while you find chapter 46... This is where we're going to see something very unique. Jeremiah has been all about God and Israel and this special relationship that they're God's people. But suddenly we see Jeremiah zoom way out, almost from God's perspective. And we're going to look at God and the nations. And what we're going to find out is... Yea, and though there are differences and cultural, dramatically different things, and there's uh, war and hostility and misunderstanding in different languages and all these different theories and philosophies and ideas of life, there is one common denominator in every single nation, and that's God. And that's what Jeremiah is going to say here to all 10 of these nations. They all have God in common with them. And to every single one of these nations, Jeremiah gives the same message that he gave to his own people. Punishment, hope. All of you are going to be exiled. All of you will be restored. That's wild to me. That Jeremiah didn't just look at these foreign nations and say... These sermons that didn't work for... Jerusalem, here you guys go. Have the leftovers. He has handcrafted special messages for each nation. And he realizes that they and Israel have something in common. They all deserve destruction and judgment. But in the end of this, all of them are going to be fixed. He doesn't hold back on them. 
He gives them the same well-crafted messages. In fact, John Bright, one of the Jeremiah scholars of some generation ago, uh, he said that these are some of the most well-crafted poems in the entire prophetic canon. Jeremiah didn't just slap this together. He, he was dedicated to these nations, and he knew something about these nations. He knows geography. He knows what's up in their situation. Jeremiah wasn't just limited to Jerusalem and lived in this limited life. He knew what was going on in the world at large, and he cared for the world at large. It's pretty impressive for a guy who can't travel around the world like we can. Jeremiah must have known people. He must have been connected with people and cared. He must have, like, like the Apostle Paul, right? Has <laughs> it ever amazed you at the end of every single epistle of Paul's, he writes this long list of names, and we always skip over that, like, oh, here's the boring part. <laughs> the book's done. Greet so-and-so. I can't pronounce all of these names, so just, this, yeah, greet them. That's great. But Paul knew so many people across the entire Roman Empire. Every city he had contacts and he writes letters. Tell them I say hi. And Jeremiah seems to know people, enough people to get a letter, a prophecy, a poem from himself to all 10 of these nations. Jeremiah didn't limit himself to his little clique and his little comfortable group. He realized that he needs to know more than himself. Don't we sometimes choose friends because they're comfortable? And really, when we think about it, we're just getting to know ourselves better in that person because they're just like us. But Jeremiah was constantly growing, constantly trying to fill out his potential, reaching out to uncomfortable people and situations and getting to know them. And looking at, you look at that, and Jeremiah was in one way or another connected to most of the world. And he could write a letter to them, a prophecy to them. And he can see that God is doing the same thing in that nation as he's doing in my nation. That this is a God of the world. This is a God of the nations. This is a global God, not just a local God. That this is a God for every race, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Not just a God for America or for Israel. And so as Jeremiah gives these messages out, we see that to him, there is no cultural condition to be initiated into the people of God. Jeremiah doesn't write these things and say, well, God's got a plan for you when you get circumcised. A Jewish cultural condition. Or, or, or here, here's God's word to this nation, but make sure that you practice your worship exactly like we do in America. And I fear that sometimes... We create a culture within our churches in America and we expect people to fit in because that's what we want. We want a church with seats filled with people that like the songs I like, that dress in the social class that I dress in, that like the books I like and likes all these things. We want people like us because it's comfortable. It's controllable. It's predictable. 
But man, the minute, the minute someone dresses wildly, look out for them. Don't talk to them. Rap music? Can God and rap mix? <laughs> and all, like, all these questions and accusations. What about, what about ethnicity? The church is global. And I'm so thankful that God has called a church of the Chinese and the Africans and the Americans and the Europeans and the Russians and every single Asian country that there are Christians all over the globe and that the church is not just one cultural condition that you have to fit into to be introduced to, but that it's fit for all nations and all people. And yet, I look around at most of America and I see Republican, I see middle class, I see white. Why? Has Christianity become a brand that we market? Well, we know where the top dollar is and where the majority of the people are, so you market to them and they buy. Because that's what it looks like. Now, I know there are, there are obvious exceptions, but I'm just talking on a, on a general level here. And if we do have in the American church uh, ethnicity variations, usually they segregate to their own. I mean, in Orange County, people talk about the Asian churches. And then you've got the Spanish-speaking churches. And that's under, language barrier is understandable. But you still have a lot of English-speaking people there, too. What, what is it that makes them feel more comfortable there than with anybody? Or you have, you know, the... Um, the African-American assemblies. And in those places, if you're white, you stand out. Why is this? And I'm asking this question like you are. I don't know the answer. And it might have something to do with music. It might have something to do with we don't like to expand our horizons. I don't know. But all I'm seeing is that the Apostle Paul and Jeremiah the prophet, they were comfortable well, whether they were or not, they acted like they're comfortable being uncomfortable. They were willing to get in people's lives and get to know them, and not just like-minded people, but people everywhere. Yeah. Colossians 3, verse 11. I'll read it to you because I'm going to do a couple here. I don't want to wait for you guys. <laughs> Colossians three eleven says this. Here, in Christ, he's saying, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There, there's no distinction between what gender, what, uh, what nationality, what race, what, what uh, physical appearance you have. There's no more of those distinctions, but all are one in Christ. All are equal it's, we're now a new identity, a new bloodline. It's his blood. It's his body. And um, there's Romans chapter 9 talks, and you guys know this passage well, but maybe you haven't connected it in this way before. Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For, Paul continues, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek race, 
place face. For the same Lord is of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then John thirteen thirty five. At that last supper, Jesus finishes washing the disciples' feet. And he, he tells them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. Not because you dress just like one another. Not because you talk just like one another. Not because you think just like one another. But because you love one another. And along with the other New Testament passages, this strips away all cultural conditions. And it simply says, Christ. There is judgment, but there is a message of hope and restoration. And in Christ, we all come to the common denominator that God is God. And then rather climatically, Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 ends with this. This is heaven's song. So if you don't like it, learn to like it. <laughs> Revelation 5 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb, this is Jesus. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Or I think the New King James says us for God. For every tribe... And language and people and nation. Hear that? Every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Who? Every language and tribe and people and nation. This is a God, a global God of the nations. And Jeremiah sees the vision. And in a world where it was very, very, very Jewish and hate the Gentiles because they're a dangerous threat and this paganism, look out. Jeremiah sees a larger vision and paves the way for what things like the church will do later on in Jesus or in our own time. God is not calling people who fit cultural conditions. He's calling all of them just to himself. And God is not American. God is not white. God is not necessarily Republican. That was not an absolute statement. So, okay. I meant to save that rant for later, but here it is. Um, I'll, I'll show you the similar message. Uh, chapter 46, verse 19. So this is to Egypt. Prepare yourselves baggage for exile. If you didn't know he's talking to you, you think this was Jerusalem. Prepare your baggage for exile. Oh, inhabitants of Egypt. Whoa, there's a shock. For Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. But then in verse 26, I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. So yeah, they're going to fall. But afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. So Egypt, you're going to fall, but you're going to be restored. Same message to Israel. Um, check out chapter 48, verse 46. 48, 46. This is to Moab. 
Woe to you, O Moab. The people of Chemosh are undone. That's their God, Chemosh. For your sons have been taken captive and your daughters into captivity. So them too are going into exile. They too. But verse 47, yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. I will judge them, yes, but I'm going to restore them, just like with Egypt and Israel. Then check out chapter 49, verse 3. This is to the nation of Ammon, the Ammonites. Wail, O Heshbon, 49, verse 3. For Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah. Put on sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro among the hedges. For Malcolm shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. So they too will be exiled. But, verse 6, but afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Them too. They're going to be restored. Then chapter 49, verse 35. This is judgment. This is to Elam. 49, verse 35. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds. And there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. They're going to be exiled terribly too. Verse 37, I will terrify Elam before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. But, verse 39, but in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam. So this is a picture we're starting to get now. God is not just operating a plan for Israel and his people. He's a global God who has a plan for the nations. And in the fall of Babylon, not only through Babylon's death will Israel come to life, but many other nations are going to come to life at the same time. Hmm. This is our global God to the point where Revelation 5, 9 Every tribe and tongue and language and nation, all saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So God, this is what I take from this. God wills salvation for everyone. He does not will that any should perish. He wills salvation for everyone. Do you? Do you will salvation for everyone? Everyone. Or are you waiting for them to meet criteria and conditions? Yeah, you might say, well, yeah, I should, you know, everyone should be saved and all this stuff. But do you actually will it? Do you want the wicked rulers of the past? Do you want them to be saved? Or would you rather them get their just due? Do you want your present enemies to be saved? Or would you rather them get what they deserve? 
This is what God wills is the restoration of all the nations. My question is, do we will the same? Goldfish. (laughs) Goldfish, the wives' tale has it, that they will only grow as big as the tank you put them in. Now, and, and it's true to degree, but it doesn't mean that if you give them a tank as big as this room, they're going to get that big. There's, there's limits to this. So probably more true, I did some reading on this. They're, they're saying now, probably more true is this, that if you give a goldfish too small of a tank, it will die. So you need to give it a big tank, and then it will grow to its full potential, and then it'll be happy. But when they, they die because you're limiting their potential, you're limiting the size they were made to be. I thought, how interesting so many of us are goldfish in too small of a tank. <laughs> and Jeremiah blows us away with this small tank, this message to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden at the end, bam, 10 nations are added on. This guy had no small fish tank. He was an ever-expanding tank. This guy was swimming to new territories all the time. And this is why Jeremiah could endure and not die and not wither at a little persecution. This is why Jeremiah's message still stands thousands of years later. And we gather every week to hear some comments on his book. This, that is power. That is a man who lived to his full potential because he didn't limit his tank to a comfortable size. I want to be able to get to my little castle in time. Or the seaweed corner over there. Or the bubbles that come up from the chest. Bubbles, bubbles. He was okay with, I've never seen this part of my tank before. I don't know where I am. But I know whose tank I'm in. Well, there's going to be a quotation on the screen. Um, They're on this time. That's good from this author that I was reading. And he says, oh, there it is good. He says this, sanctity does not consist merely in doing the will of God. It consists in willing the will of God. For sanctity is union with God and not all those who carry out his will are united with his will. Not all those who carry out his will are united with his will. Example, Babylon. They're God's cup and hammer. And they carried out his will perfectly. But why are they judged in the end? They did his will, but they didn't will his will. They weren't united with his will. They sought their own purposes and happened to do his will because God is sovereign. Another example, the cross. The death of Jesus was the will of God. The Romans and the Jews that helped carry that out, they did the will of God, but they certainly did not will the things that God wills. Continuing, even those who commit sin contribute by the effects of their sin to the fulfillment of the will of God. But because they sin, they formally will what God does not will. And a man can also sin by failing to will what God wills him to do. In either case, he may do what God wills while himself willing the opposite. 
just explaining the same idea. It is not always necessary to find out what God wills in order to do it. A man can live like a tree or an animal doing the divine will all his life and never know anything about it. But if we are to will what he wills, we must begin to know something of what he wills. We must at least desire to know what he wills. You get it? A tree that grows and bears fruit outside, it is doing the will of God, but it doesn't mean it knows the God of the will. It's doing his will, but it's not necessarily desiring and craving and willing his will. And so this is, you can live your whole life doing the will of God, but that doesn't make you a servant of God. Animals and trees and dirt does the will of God. But do you will the will of God? See, there's a difference between doing and desiring. That's, that's the gist of what it is saying. Doing and desiring. And we read that the global God desires, he wills all to be saved. And I'm asking you, are you willing the will of God? And deceive yourself not saying, ah, but people are drinking from me or my hammer is helping nail the right points. (laughs) Babylon did the same. Don't self-justify yourself because I'm doing good or I am doing the ministry or I am not sinning. The things I'm doing are great. But remember, trees and dogs do the same. Are you desiring what God desires, willing what he wills in your obedience. And this includes the nations of the global God. And as we desire what he desires, beyond just what I desire, my goldfish tank grows. And I can then live to my potential and the person God has called me to be rather than dying by suffocation and by limitation. So I encourage us not to limit ourselves with the comfortable, the familiar. But to allow God's own heart to be grafted into our own heart so that my desires are not just to do his will, but that my desires would be to desire the very thing that he desires and to do even those things, even if it means I have to swim to waters I've never before known. And so here's Jeremiah prophecies to all the nations with the basic message that God wants all of you. And he's willing to go out. And here are we. Are we stuck or are we willing to do the same? And this is what I I want to close you with this invitation. It's three verses. They all say the same thing. 50 verse 8. 50 verse 8. Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans. That's Babylon. Um, 51 verse 6. 51.6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For in the time of the Lord's vengeance, the payment 
he is rendering her. And finally, 51 verse 45. 51:45. Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Flee Babylon. Go out of Babylon. And in Revelation chapter 18, he copies Jeremiah. He says, come out of Babylon, my people, lest you take part in her sins. And so here we are. Are we stuck in Babylon? Now, Israel was exiled to Babylon. They were supposed to be there. Remember, Jeremiah even said, make your time useful. Make stuff. Help them. But there's a time when Babylon falls and God is asking. It got comfortable for you, right? You know Babylon now. Everything else is foreign. Are you willing to flee Babylon? Are you willing to will what God wills, not just do what he wills? So I want to invite you guys to flee Babylon with me. That we don't get stuck and comfortable in a system that's going down. That we flee and we say, I want to hit up all the nations. And, and that for you may not necessarily mean physical nations, but it might mean people. There are people I am uncomfortable with or I've just neglected or there's situations or I'm just too limited. I've just, I've just enclosed myself with what I know and things just like me. Let's flee Babylon. Let's not be suffocated goldfish, but let's live to what God has called us to be and run with the horses as he's been calling Jeremiah to do this whole time. Even from the very beginning of the book, he's calling Jeremiah, don't be fearful, become, become, become. Look what I've created you to be, what I've called you to be before you were even born. This was my plan for you. Jeremiah, don't limit yourself. Don't be an only person, but be fully a person. Be everything I've called you to be and let yourself keep growing until I'm saying, that's enough. Your time is done. Let's not just sit in Babylon on our sofa and with the people that talk like just, just like us and walk just like us. And I'm not saying you have to change your entire life, but let's at least let the nations know that there are no cultural conditions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us be people that are willing to flee Babylon and expand a little bit. Amen? Father.